Time is short. So John Piper in his book, Don't Waste Your Life, tells about two different accounts. And, and these accounts are um, really challenging. And I'm going to just kind of read them to you as we start off. In April two of 2000, Ruby Eliason and Laura Edwards uh, were killed in Cameroon, West Africa. Uh, these ladies had given their lives to missionary work in this area. Ruby was over 80. She'd been single all her life. She had poured out her heart and soul to unreached the poor and the sick. And, and Laura was a widow, a medical doctor who was also pushing around 80, and she had come with Ruby to minister to these people. Their brakes went out, and they went over top of a cliff and, and died. And John Piper asked his congregation, was that a tragedy? Was it a tragedy that these women went over the cliff and died? Two lives driven by one great passion, namely to spend it on the, on the will of God and doing what, what God wanted them to do. He said, it's not a tragedy, it's a glory. He said, these people, these two women gave everything for the gospel. They put their lives on the line. They went somewhere where obviously their, their wills weren't quite as uh, reliable as ours are, right? It was a different place. It was just a, a blessing. They had a car in the, to begin with to be able to travel. Their lives were not wasted. As Jesus said, whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Then he goes on to tell another account. He says, I will tell you what a tragedy is. And he talks about a 1998 Reader's Digest who talks about a couple um, in their 50s. Uh, the husband um, somewhere around 59, the, the wife 51. And they, li- they grew up there. They lived in the Northeast where the husband worked and saved and saved and saved to get this retirement account so that they could retire early. And so they go and they move to Punta Gorda, uh, yeah, Punta Gorda, Florida, and they go and they play softball. They get on their boat and they collect shells. And as he read the story, he was like, oh, this has to be a joke, right? I mean, this is, this is their, their dream, like, like this is the American dream. They saved up all this money so they could move to Punta Gorda, Florida and collect shells and, and play softball. And so are they, are they doing something else? Like they've got to be doing something else. And Tragically, that actually, actually was true. It, it was what they were doing. And he said, that's a tragedy. So could you imagine they get to the end of their lives and they, and they die and, they, and they're in front of Jesus Christ. And, and, they, and he, he says, hey, you know, give me an account of your life. And they say, hey, Jesus, look at my shell collection. Could you, like, that is a wasted life. That is a wasted life. He says, this is a tragedy. He said, billions of dollars are being spent to persuade you to embrace that type of American dream. He says, over and against that, I put my protest, don't buy it, don't waste your life. These two pointed accounts, as they kind of penetrate our hearts and minds, as we see the two opposite ends of the spectrum, one, uh, they go down swing, and the other one, they never even picked up the bat, is a good way to maybe put that. As those kind of start to work in your brain, uh, I pray that, that God opens up his word as we join in here in Colossians 4, 5, and 6. Paul says here, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, uh, just open up our hearts and minds to, to your word today. Uh, Lord, this is a, it's a hard word. Uh, don't waste your life. Time is short. 
Um, there, there's, there's so many times where we look back at our lives and we see where we have wasted good chunks of our life on things that are, that are fleeting. And so God, as we, as we enter this, may we take this, may we allow your Holy Spirit to convict us where we need to be convicted, to make the changes we need to make, and God, that may, may we live intentionally for you and for the gospel. God, please speak through me. May it be your word and not mine that comes out. And God, may your word open up our hearts and minds to make us more obedient to you. We love you, Lord. Amen. So today we're going to discuss two ways that we need to live in light of the fact that our time on earth is short. It is limited. Uh, the first point is because our time on earth is short, we should walk wisely. We should walk wisely. I'm going to reread verse 5. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. So these introductory accounts really rocked my world and kind of opened my eyes to the vanity of, of life in general in America, especially years ago when I read this. Uh, the American dream has been the dream of, is the goal of many a retirement account out there, right? It's like, well, we're going to save up so that we can do absolutely nothing and be selfish when we get to be 50-some, 60-some, or whatever that ends up being. And those who have done this find that amassing all of that wealth and working so hard proves to really be fleeting and empty. And those who are in our culture today also see the stock market, which can go like this and go like this, and all that work can disappear in the blink of an eye. So my question is, where is your heart, my friends? When, when you look, where is your heart? How is your walk? And, and how do you make the best use of the time that you have left remaining on this earth? And I want to really start by digging in the first half of this verse, walk in wisdom. And we've talked about this word wisdom before. It's Sophia, and it, it really means wisdom is probably the best translation. But there's some other translations that may illuminate this word for us a little bit more. It means to be prudent, clever, skillful, uh, insightful, knowledgeable, and to be experienced in. However, wisdom is much bigger than your intellect and your experience. So it, it, it's, it's definitely beneficial to have knowledge. It's definitely beneficial to have experience in order to aid in wisdom. But I would argue there are some very, very intelligent intellectual people out there who are probably the foolish people you'll ever meet because true wisdom is being able to take knowledge being able to take insight, being able to take uh, your experiences even and use them the right at the at the right time and in the right way, you know you can you can do this in the wrong t- at the wrong time and it's not wise it's foolishness right the same thing, and true wisdom comes from who, God. So so there's only one place that we can get true wisdom and that is from the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see in James one five. Uh, James says here, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. I mean, how amazing is this? This is a promise from God. We, we also see if we keep going, we actually talked about that scripture, I think last week or before, how we need to have faith and not doubt. So we need to ask, ask God for wisdom and have faith that he will give it, and then it will be answered. But this is a promise, and there are very few promises in scripture that are, if you do this, this will happen. Uh, name it and claim it kind of thing, like where you can actually say, hey, I can claim this promise of God. Uh, there's many churches that name and claim things that aren't promised by God, and they're blasphemous in that, but this is one where you can say, all right, Lord, please give me wisdom. I ask for wisdom. I humbly ask for wisdom. I have faith that you can give me wisdom, and I know that, that if I have faith and I believe that you're going to give me wisdom, I pray for that, that you're going to answer that prayer. Our God is an as unchanging and consistent God. What he says in his word, he will do. And we can even see him do this even in the Old Testament before, before Jesus Christ had died on the cross. We see this with King Solomon. 
Uh, if you know the story of King Solomon, the account of King Solomon, we see King Solomon takes over for King David, and David was a man after God's own heart. He was a man of wisdom. He was a man who wrote the Psalms, and you just see so much there. And so here King Solomon is saying, man, I, I don't got this. Like, this is a big people group that I need to, that I have to lead, and, and there's divisions, and there's strife, and there's problems, and they don't always listen. They don't always do what <laughs> they're supposed to do. And I look at my history, and I read my history books, and I see, dude, we, we were in the wilderness for a while. Like, we've had some rough goes at it here, and I don't, I don't know if I'm ready for this, and so the Lord appears to Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 5 here. It says, at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, ask what I shall give you. Whoa, that's a pretty good question. Uh, could you all imagine God appearing to you and saying, what do you want? Ask what I shall give you, and, and I mean, just as you thought about that, what was your answer? And most of us like, it'd be nice to be able to have a little extra cash, be nice to have nice health, it'd be nice to, you know, ha have, have some more free time, maybe a nicer house, maybe a nicer car, maybe a nicer whatever, some fame, maybe I'd like to be more athletic again. You know, I'm sure there's all kinds of things that kind of come in your mind, like, oh, this is, that's what I'd ask for, but, but what does Solomon ask for? Instead of asking for something as fleeting as those things, he says in verse 9 in that same chapter, give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this your great people? Do you, do you love his humility there? Who's able to do this? Like, it's a great people, but he also knows they're a stubborn and rebellious people, and it's going to require a lot of wisdom to take these two kingdoms that have kind of struggled a little bit, and we see after Solomon, they break, they break apart, uh, and so, so it's going to take a lot of wisdom to keep everybody together on the same page. So he asks for wisdom for an understanding mind to govern the people. And God loves this request, and God blesses this request, as well as giving him other riches and power and things like that, too. But God is a God who loves wisdom and loves to gift it to his children. And so I pray earnestly that you pray for wisdom. He will give it to you if you have faith. So if we keep moving forward, we see that there's many reasons that we need to walk in wisdom. Uh, obviously, first and foremost, it'd be being obedient to Christ. But, but Paul is really talking more about outsiders here. And we see here that, 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 that Paul touches on this different reason for walking in wisdom. It's because other people are watching you. Other people are around you. And how you walk, they're going to be watching. And so this Greek word for outsiders here describes those who are not believers. Those who are outside of Christ, outside of the church. Those who are not Christians. The preacher's outline in study Bible says this about outsiders. Outsiders are without hope beyond this life, without assurance of life hereafter with God, without help in facing the trials and traumas of this life, without peace and security, without fellowship with God and his family of believers, without freedom from guilt, no assurance of forgiveness, without light, no freedom from darkness and the grave. Do you hear the darkness and just the, the sadness of those statements? So outsiders are without hope. And you're in your hand out there, outsiders are without hope, without assurance, without help, without peace and security, without fellowship, and without freedom. And how we walk before outsiders, how we walk before unbelievers is very, very important. However, I do want to share something else here, too. So I've heard a lot of people use this comment. I'm sure you've heard it, too, that you may be the only Bible that someone else reads. They may watch your life, and, and you may be the only Bible, quote-unquote, that they read. And I think that there's definitely some, some truth to that. I'm not saying that you're a witness that, that how you live doesn't matter. It is, it is very important. 
However, we must not just influence those around us by the way we walk. We, we must not be okay with just that. We, we must take every opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we are walking wisely, then God opens doors for us to be able to talk the talk, to be able to share the gospel. People are not saved by your righteous living. And I think that that has become a lie from Satan, that, that he has made us believe that if we live above reproach, if we are generous to others, if we are giving, if we volunteer at certain things, if we help our neighbors, if we do whatever, that people will be saved. That just by our kindness, just by our graciousness, just by our smile, that they're just going to look and be like, oh, I, I want Jesus. Like, it, it, that, that is just going to open up the door. And that's just not how it works, friends. Like, they have to hear the gospel. Uh, we see Paul say in Romans 10, 14, How then will they call on him and whom they have not believed? And how are they believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Brothers and sisters, how you live is extremely important. How you walk among outsiders is extremely important. Don't, don't negate that. Because if you live in such a way that is not in accordance to the gospel, in accordance to the word of God, you discredit the message that you bring. Uh, you, you may burn bridges of what, where you could share that gospel because of how you've treated others. And so I don't mean to negate or say, well, how righteous living doesn't matter. It's extremely important. That's why Paul says, watch how you walk before outsiders. But Paul also, obviously in Romans, says that they're not going to believe just because you lived a certain way. You know, there's, there's nice pagans out there. There's people that are very kind, people that are atheists. Like, you know, being kind does not mean you're a Christian. Christians should be kind. We should exude the fr fruits of the Spirit, right, that we see in Galatians 5. But you're not saved by your kindness personally, and no one else is saved because you're kind. It's the gospel that saves us, and we want to make the most of our time. And this make the most of, of your time here in Colossians 4, 5, the last part here. This Greek word means to buy back or make this time count. I love, I love the psalmist in Psalm 90, verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. It kind of puts this whole scripture just right in view. Uh, so teach us to number our days, right? The time is short that we may get a heart of wisdom. And true, true wisdom understands that our days are numbered, that, that we've only got a certain amount of time on this earth. True wisdom understands that James, when he says this in verse four, chapter 4, verse 14, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. True wisdom understands that we need to make the best use of our time, for the days are evil, as we see elsewhere in Scripture. Because others are perishing quickly as well. Others are mists and vapors. And for us who are in Christ, it's like it's a little humbling to know you're a vapor, you're a mist. It's a little humbling to know that tomorrow we may not be here. One of us may not be here next week. You know, it, it, that's humbling. But we know for us to live as Christ and to die is gain. We know where we're going if we are in Christ. And I pray that everyone here knows that for for sure, that they're not doubting their salvation, that they truly know. And if you are, I'd love to talk to you about it to, so that you can be sure when you lay your head on the pillow tonight where you're going to go. As Paul says in Philippians 1.21, to die is gain. Yeah, I'm sure we want to spend more time with our families. We have some things we'd like to do. But we know when our number's called, when it's our time to go home, we know where we're going. But for outsiders, 
they'll be just that. They'll be outside. They'll be outside of heaven, and there's only one place. If you have died and you were outside of heaven, there's only one place where you will be, and that is in eternal torment, a place called hell. And we must take advantage of every opportunity to share the gospel with unbelievers. We talked about the way to waste your life, and it is to spend it alone, all, all on yourself alone, selfishly reveling in your pleasures while countless souls move into eternal darkness as they pass away. Church, I pray that we are not a church that wastes our lives on things that are, have no eternal significance, no eternal differences. I pray that we're not spending our time toiling for things that are going to be temporal, that are here today, gone tomorrow. I pray that as we talked about last week, that we walk with God minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day, that we pray without ceasing, that God will open up doors for us to share the gospel with those around us. And I, I promise you this, if you are intentionally praying to be able to share the gospel with someone, he will open a door eventually. You will see doors that open, and somebody will say something like, oh man, I'm really struggling through this, I really had a dark time. And God will give you that end to say, hey, I've been there too. You know how I get through it? Jesus Christ. You know, and you can bring the gospel, and you can bring the truth of God's word. Keep open eyes and make the most out of every opportunity because time is short. And our second point, because our time on earth is short, we should speak soundly. We should speak soundly. Verse 6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Let your speech, a lot of people when they hear the word speech, they think of what I'm doing. It's standing up in front of people and presenting something. Uh, some of you, when you think of that, you get palpitations and you're ready to go ahead and just run out the door. Uh, you're like, I'm not, I'm not doing that. I was one of those people too. That's how God works. Uh, he takes those people and sometimes puts them up uh, and has them talk. I was that kid with a, with a lisp. Uh, I was that kid with, uh, who, who was really quiet and didn't want to, to do that. And, and God is, is a God who likes to take the Moseses and and have them speak. That's just how he works. But your speech is more than just getting up and what you say certain times. Your speech is everything that you say, everything that comes out of your mouth. And here it is emphasized even more because it's coming right after talking about how we walk with outsiders. So it's not just any speech. It's your, especially your speech when you're around outsiders, unbelievers, those who are not in Christ. And this command has much to do with your personal witness before the Lord. Theologian uh, Richard, Mel Me Me I think it's Melick, uh, makes an important distinction when it comes to your speech. And I like this quote, both the content of words spoken and the method of speaking matter. That's good. Both the content of words spoken and the method of speaking matter. So let's talk about the content first of, of your speech and what you say. So what you say matters. So the truthfulness and the accuracy of what you say is a direct correlation of your character and your integrity. So, so what you say, the content of what you say, the subject matter of what you talk about has a lot to do with where your heart and where your mind is. So, so where do, what do you spend most of your time discussing with others? If you think about your conversations with other people, what do you talk about the most? Especially when you're talking to outsiders, someone who is not in Christ, what do you spend the most time talking about? Usually it's superficial things such as sports or the weather. Or is it more substantial for you. Maybe it, is, maybe it is the gospel. Maybe it is biblical truth. And I understand there's going to be times where we're going to have some more superficial discussions that somebody will know that don't, we don't know that well. And, and there is a movement of starting off slow and, and getting to know somebody. But eventually those conversations should continue to get deeper. 
your neighbors, your friends, your work colleagues, your family, if you continue and all you're doing is just hitting superficial things, you're not making any impact on anyone. You're, you're wasting their time, you're wasting your own time, and frankly, you're wasting that par- part of your life that you can't get back, that you're just spending on things that just don't matter, things that are temporal. Our conversations should be enriched by biblical knowledge. We should be seeking deeper conversations with people, asking open-ended questions, trying and, and, and truly caring about what their answers are. It should have content, and we should make the, make, take advantage of every opportunity to bring in the, the gospel. I'm not saying we need to be bashing people over the Bible. We need to be bringing the gospel in. And number two, we see method. This has to do more with how we say what we say. I'm sure we've all met those people that man, they, they really are strong on the truth, and they, and they know they have a lot of wisdom as far as knowledge. They, they can really spout off things that are like, wow, that's, that's really good, but their delivery, it, it struggles. The, the, the delivery, the knowledge isn't taken that well, and I think we as parents, we really have to watch that, especially as our kids get older of how we deliver things. You can't deliver the same message to your 12-year-old as you did your 2-year-old. How you address your 2-year-old in, in an authoritative way, maybe your 12, 14-year-old, maybe you don't take that. You have a little bit of authority, obviously, but you don't necessarily have to talk to them like they're 2 or 3. You treat them as the young adult that they're developing into, and, and you love them, and, and you set those boundaries high. Don't get me wrong. You, you set those, those, those uh, expectations high, but how we talk to people matters, and I think we we really see this in family situations, probably the worst, our delivery. We let our guard down, and it's like, would you talk to your boss that way? Uh, would, you, would you talk, you know, to somebody else, but, we, but with our wife or our husband or our kids or, you know, somebody, somebody that's, like, close to us or friends? We may just let that, just let things slip. And, and our delivery, even if maybe what we said was right, the way we said it wasn't right. So it really matters. And we see in, in, in this Colossians 4, 6, let your speech always be gracious. This word gracious is charis, which is the same word we see in Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. So it was for by, what, grace you've been saved. This is talking about salvation. This is Ephesians 2.8, which is a huge salvation verse, that we're saved by grace, not by works, so that no man can boast. It's a gift of God. And Paul uses that exact same word that we just heard for salvation and how our speech should be gracious. That is... That's a tough one. Remember, this Greek word charis means unmerited favor, unearned favor. So just as we are saved by grace, we are to be gracious toward outsiders. And I can tell you one thing. As I started studying through the application of that, that idea, that, that grace, I'm supposed to have gracious speech. And we're talking about outsiders here even more so. We need to be gracious to one another as well. That's definitely a command. But we're, we're seeing in, in this context that we're to be gracious in our speech, especially to outsiders as we walk among outsiders. And I can feel the weight of this really starting to hit me a little bit because I started thinking about our enemies, those who, who stand against everything that the church stands for, uh, those who stand against hot-button issues that maybe we're pretty strong about. And I had a ton of different situations that came to mind, but obviously the most pressing one that we're seeing in our culture and in our news and our society is obviously this Roe versus Wade overturn, the Dobbs case. And I know that, that, that we live in a society that's marked by the murder of the preborn. And I know that even, even to these pro-abortion advocates, we are to continually continue speaking graciously. That's hard, isn't it? I, yes, we stand up and we fight for these human lives that are being murder, murderously 
taken at the hands of so-called healthcare providers who are really executioners or undertakers, but we're still to speak to them graciously. And this means that although we take a firm approach on these issues and we don't back down uh, on that firm approach on these issues, we still love those people. We still desire to see salvation fall among those who are pro-abortion advocates, uh, those women who are fighting hard, those men who are fighting hard for these things. I think we have a tendency sometimes to, to villainize our opponents like they're hell-bent pagans who have no capacity for salvation. And I was humbled by this because I think that we can all sometimes take that kind of approach where it's like it's us versus them and and you know they're they're just, they're just going they're going to hell. Like I mean I I don't really know what to say, but I, I have no place for them. You know in our church I have no place for them in my neighborhood. And we can sometimes have that view of people. Yet we know that anyone who is still breathing can be saved. And we don't we see this in just in a remarkable area of the guy that's writing this letter, the Apostle Paul. I mean if he, if anybody was going to be voted least likely to be saved, and, and they had a vote, Paul would have won that hands down. Uh, who's the least likely person to come to Jesus in Israel? Paul. Possibly, yeah, Paul, Paul is going to... Now he's the Apostle Paul as he writes this. Anyone can be saved. He was a murderer and persecutor of Christians. As bad as many of these people that support certain things are, uh, most of them aren't going to our churches and shooting everybody and trying to take them to jail. I mean, so the, the Apostle Paul was there. I'm not saying they're not going to get there. But, but, you know, but the Apostle Paul was already there, and yet he was saved by Jesus Christ. To move forward, Paul even uses this little phrase, season with salt. And I think, we're going to talk about salt here in just a second, but I think as we, as we consider these hot-button issues, as we consider things like abortion or, or sexuality, we need to stand firm on, on the truth, and we need to not back down from those things. But we also need to make sure that we're gracious and that we leave, leave open that door of opportunity to share the gospel with people. Because the, the biggest issue is not that people have misunderstandings and, mis, and misguided beliefs on sexuality. The biggest problem is they don't have Jesus Christ. Uh, the biggest problem is not that certain people support certain practices. Even, even with abortion, their biggest problem is that they're lost and they can't see clearly. They, they have Satan, the little G God of this world, who has blinded their minds and their eyes so that they think that truth is falsehood and falsehood is truth they think that murder is good and that life is bad they're, they're blinded and so we need to see people as lost souls that still have a chance of salvation that doesn't mean we don't back down from these these battles but but we do them in such a way that we're gracious and loving and that we're kind and that we're gospel-centered so salt, as he says here, seasoned with salt, it, it had a few different uh, uses back in this time and still has some uses today as well. And, and we saw that it was used for flavor, for a healing remedy, and for preservation. What Paul specifically meant whenever we're seeing this, it, it, it's, it requires some speculations, but I think it's plausible that he meant all three. And I want to go through these together just to kind of talk about how he could mean salt and how he likely means salt when he says this in our conversation. So the first, salt as flavor. So the first use of salt is that it makes food taste better. It makes it rich. Uh, if you've ever had anything that didn't have enough salt, it's kind of like, like mashed potatoes without salt. It's like eating cardboard. 
I mean, you know, you might as well just get a box and just take a bite out of it because that's about what mashed potatoes without salt tastes like. And for those of you maybe that have to use slow salt diets, I'm sorry, just don't eat mashed potatoes. It's probably not worth it. Um, so, you know, so, so you need that for that richness, you know. And if you try to put butter without salt in it, it's like it's a little better, but it's still kind of like, eh, I don't know. You, just, you need a little salt, which brings out that richness. And our speech should have substance and richness. It should be full of the riches of this, God's Word. Your speech should be dripping with the Word of God that is coming out of you. And the only way that happens is that you're reading God's Word, that you're hiding it in your heart, that, that, that you're applying it in those conversations. And again, I'm not saying you take this and start beating people upside the head with it, but it should be such a part of you, the Word of God, the Word living in you, should be such a part of you that when somebody asks you for advice, you can't help but bring up Scripture. Even if you're not directly quoting it, it it's just coming out. That, that spiritual wisdom, the wisdom that God gives you. And so when people leave a conversation with you, they should have had the richness of the Word of God that came through you to them. They should, they should see your kindness and your love, but through the gospel. Number two, salt is healing. This one's a little more difficult practically because salt it hurts sometimes, right? I mean, so salt, we use saline solution in medicine. When people come into the ER and see me, what do we do if they have a, a, a wound and I got to sew it up? We, we pour saline solution on it and, and we clean it really, really well. And salt is an antiseptic. It kills bacteria and it kind of helps, helps clean it. But, but what happens when we first drop that on there? Ah, you know, you, you hear somebody like they scream. They're like, why did you do that to me? Like, why did you pour something that you knew was going to hurt me? Almost, I'm, can't you tell I'm already hurt? I just sliced my arm open, and now you're putting something in it that hurts me. You know, what kind of doctor are you? What kind of, what kind of ER is this that you're going to hurt me? We're, we're, we're an ER that cares. We're an ER that doesn't want to see you get an infection in that wound. We're an ER that wants to make sure that if you have little fragments of something from whatever that was that we get it out. We're an ER that cares. And so our speech should not only be gracious, but it needs to be fully truth. And truthful speech can be painful, just like that saline hitting that wound that makes you scream out in pain. And you're like, why would you say that to me? Why, why did you have to say that? And, and this is kind of going back to that what we talked about a little earlier with the issue of abortion. If you've had an abortion or you know someone who's had an abortion, it hurts when you talk about it. It hurts when somebody says something. You're like, why, why would you go there? Like, let's just not go there. You know, I just want to ignore that part. We're not going to talk about abortion. We're not gonna, and it can be painful at first. Just the gravity of that can be painful. Yet the love of Christ and the truth of Christ's word and the, uh, the love that he just showers upon us, it's a, it's a healing balm that helps prevent corruption and bacteria from getting into our lives. That truth of God's word, if we're willing to be trained by it, if we're willing to take the pain for a second, the, the conviction that may hit us, if we're willing to, to accept that and humble our hearts and say, Lord, not your will, but my will be done. Lord, I know that I've blown it in the past. I know that I shouldn't have done this. I know that I shouldn't have done that. I know that I blew it here. But I'm willing to allow the sting of that, that, that saline solution. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to let, sing that truth to humble myself so that I know that it will provide healing. And finally, salt is preservation. Finally, we see that salt can be a preserver, and we've seen this for countless centuries for like meats and different foods, and it keeps bacteria out from, from, from spoiling those foods. So how can our speech be preserving, life-preserving toward others? Well, I think we see this in 1 Peter 3.15. 
always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. We see the grace coming out there too. This means that you should always be prepared to share the gospel, as we already stated earlier in this message. And you should do it in love and graciously, but also truthfully, which it may hurt some as well too, right? The most life-preserving words, the best seasoning of salt that you can have is the gospel. There is nothing better that you can say. There is nothing more life-preserving to, to your neighbors, to your family, to your friends, is the, other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, we, we talked about the qualities of outsiders in our, in our first point there. We talked about how they're without hope and without assurance. But we are not. If we are in Christ, we're not without hope. We're not without assurance. We have faith, which is the assurance of things hoped for, the things that we haven't seen yet, right? We have hope and we have assurance. We have the words of life that Jesus Christ gave us. Right? What did Peter tell Jesus? Where else should I go? You have the words of eternal life. Well, you, my friends, have the words of eternal life given to you by Jesus Christ. We now know the one who created them, the one who has the power to save them from eternal torment. And we have those words of life in us. We have the living word who lives within us as the Holy Spirit. And I pray that our conversations are less focused on ourselves and more focused on the gospel and others. To come to a close today, I pray that we understand our, our gr the gravity of our lives on earth. The time is indeed short. Every day, it's estimated that somewhere between 150 to 165,000 people die. They, they no longer take a breath. And most of these die as unbelievers, and they face eternal torment eternal judgment. And many may scoff and say, well, why doesn't God do something about it then? If God is so good, why doesn't he do something about it? And we know, friends, that he did. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross some 2,000 years ago for our sins. He took on the wrath of God that we deserved on himself. He took nails through his wrists, and through his feet. He took a crown of thorns. He hung, and he bled, and he died. The sixth, or th three days later, we see what? He ascended, into, he ascended from the grave. He rose from the dead. And God, so God took on the sin of the world. He took on that for us. He took on our punishment. And then many will kind of go a little further than that and say, well, then why doesn't he tell everybody about this? Uh, why, if, if he did that wonderful thing that you're saying, how come so many people don't know? How come so many people are still going to hell? How, how come so many people still haven't even maybe heard the gospel? What, what's his plan to share the good news? What's his plan, church? We're his plan. You are his plan. And I am his plan. His plan has always been to send believers into the world and be the church that shares the gospel with the world. It's not God's fault. It's ours. We're the ones that aren't sharing the gospel. We're the ones that are talking about things that don't matter. We're the ones that don't love our neighbor enough to maybe speak up and say something that's a little tough. Maybe go to a certain area of a conversation that we know may cause some issues. I'm not saying we need to just go and, and try to poke people and, and, and be mean about it. But we need to be substantial in our conversations, rich in our conversations, life-preserving in our conversations. I want to encourage you all to join us Saturday, July 2nd. 
Saturday, July 2nd, so the first Saturday next month. We're going to meet here at about 10:15. talk a little bit before we go and head over to Valley Park and, and Hurricane here, hand out some waters and pray that God allows us to share the gospel with some people. I know it's going to be a little warm. You know, if you can only go 15, 20 minutes even, well, you know, we'll, we'll do it. That, that's better than nothing. But this, I think this is a, I really want us as a church to be gospel-centered, to, to, to see that it's not, I mean, this is great. The fellowship of believers is so important. It, it, it's, it's so great. It, we, we are commanded to do this. We're commanded to meet together. Hebrews, we, we, we see in 1025, we're, we're not to neglect meeting together. We're to sing songs, spiritual songs, hymns to the Lord. We're to gather as the koinonia of the fellowship. But this isn't where it stops. This is where we get built up so that we can go into the world and share the gospel. Jesus has commanded us to do this. And I think that our, our church in America is asleep at the wheel. That we watch our, our nation spinning out of control. And they, we can't even, we have Supreme Court justice that doesn't know what a woman is at this point. We have gotten that far that even the highest echelon in our society are so lost. And so I think that we need to take that step and say, okay, I'm going to take this little step here. And let's say you don't feel comfortable. You're like, oh, you know, I don't, we'll go in groups of two or three and you can learn from somebody else how to do it. And we'll, we'll put you with somebody that maybe is a little bit more seasoned and we'll figure that out. But I pray that you, that you step out in faith, that you take this event seriously because people's eternal lives are at stake, my friends. They need to hear in order to believe. And we want to be that preserving, that life-preserving speech in our region. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the fact that it is it's hard. It's so simple, but it's also so hard. The gospel is so simple that a child can grasp it, but it's so hard to live out because we are naturally sinful, and we want to be comfortable. We don't want to rock the boat. We don't want to be known as as extremists. We don't want to be known in certain ways. We want, to, we want to be accepted by others. But God, you you are our example, and you were rejected by men. You were hung on a cross, and you said that no servant is greater than his master. If, if I was persecuted, then you will be persecuted. And so are we being persecuted? If we're not, maybe it's because we're not really having speech this season with Saul. Maybe we're not really having a life-preserving speech. Maybe we're really not going to those areas, uh, although we need to be gracious, but, but, but we're not being gracious to anyone if we don't share the gospel with them because that is true grace. Salvation is the real grace. It's the real deal. Gracious is, it isn't just pacifying someone into eternal torment. Graciousness is loving them enough just like Jesus. So Jesus, when he poured out grace upon us, he poured out his blood for us. That was his gracious act toward us. Is it not too much for him to ask us to pour out our lives for others in gracious love for them, even when they may not see it that way? Just like those who hung him on the cross did not see him that way, did not see him as being gracious toward them, but he was. And so God, help us to to be a strong people for you, strengthened by your grace and your mercy, knowing that we are forgiven in you, Lord. And God, I pray that, that our lives bring you glory, that you open up doors for us to share the gospel with those around us, give us a boldness, and encourage us in this. We love you and thank you. Amen. Have a blessed week.